it was hugely liberating to be to actually have yeah to get a to get a kind of diagnosis which kind of said that that's what you're suffering from but wow you know i would never in a million years have thought that that i would that i would experience anxiety fuel depression Looking after our mental health at work has never felt more important for all of us. So welcome to this very special season of the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor and for this series, I'll be talking to expert CEOs, human resources, diversity inclusion, and other leaders in their field on the very current and necessary topic of mental health within teams and in the workplace, whether that's in an office or in your home. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Finally, I have got the lovely Jeff McDonald uh, on my podcast. I feel like we should just celebrate for just having you here. That's all I need. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Petra. I mean, and there's no need for a drum roll. I just, I don't know why we just have found it so difficult to get this in the, uh, in the diary, but I'm, but I'm delighted to be chatting to you today. It's so great to um, have you here. Now, we've obviously crossed paths within the mental health space. Uh, we've spoken at similar events or I've been an attendee or whatever. We've crossed paths quite a bit, which is why I've, I've, I've tried to get you uh, on the show. But you're a busy man. It's hard to pin you down. Yeah, well, you know, um, a sense of purpose takes you to people and to places you could never, ever imagine. And Isn't it's just that being... true? Isn't <laughs> that true? You can just, like, have you... Could you have mapped out that this is what your life would be, I don't know, three, five years ago? No ways. No ways. And no way, no way. who would have thought such, such a rewarding, such a rewarding um, part of my life right now was actually catalyzed by real tragedy in many ways, you know? So it's all very ironic as well that, that you know, I feel such a, deep sense of purpose to the work that I do, but it was all catalyzed by a tragedy a couple of years ago. Yeah, and I guess we've realized, and I've done, you know, over 130 interviews now, um, trying to capture that theme of why is it that some of us need the tragedy or the, the, the something to disrupt our almost like blinkered lives and, and sort of wake us up to uh, the possibilities and the exciting roller coaster that I know that you, you've been on. Um, give us a little bit of context just to what was life before the tragedy? So, so what was fulfilling then or what were you doing in your life? Um, yeah, I mean, the life before the tragedy was, I mean, it was, it was good. Um, like, like everybody's lives, there were ups and downs. You know, I had my own significant down I suppose real down in 2008 when I was diagnosed with anxiety fueled depression, uh, which meant you know I was working for Unilever at the time, and uh, uh, you know I had to take three months off work. Um, I was doing a really senior role in HR and woke up one night with a panic attack, and that was the beginning of a of a three month period of having to be at home and dealing with anxiety fueled depression. And but, what was your, cause I know you're South African. What was your like knowledge or education or understanding around panic attacks, mental health stuff growing up? Like did, was, was there any? 
Absolutely none whatsoever. Okay. So, you know, when, when I have the panic attack, I, I kind of think to myself, I'm having a heart attack. Um, my understanding of the words depression and anxiety, I often use this um, depression, you know, you know, my understanding back in 2008 was, um, was kind of, um, I'm an Arsenal supporter. I, I support Arsenal football team and we get two thirds into every season and we think we're going to win the league. And then the last third, the wheels fall off. And I turn to my wife and say, I'm depressed about this Arsenal football team. Yeah. Or, or I'd get up on a Saturday morning and I want to go for a bike ride and it's pouring with rain outside. And I would say, I'm depressed because it's raining outside. So, I mean, so using depressed for like sad or disappointed. Yeah, yeah, that was that was my kind of you know that was my sense of depression and anxiety and panic attacks. I mean, never experienced anything like that in my in my life before. No, no, but but, but what really saved my life during that time was my ability to talk, my ability to. I was determined not to be burdened by the stigma that was associated with anxiety and depression, and this is back in two thousand and eight. Um, but that, you know, that ability to be able to just talk, to tell my family, to tell some of my friends, to tell my employer, I mean, it saved my life. It saved my life. Um, what brought it on? So what sort of was that lead up six months or three months or I don't know? Uh, you know, I mean, it was the way in which I was just living my life, I suppose. You know, yeah. I was doing, I was doing a global role in HR. I was traveling the world all the time. Now I'd always been mindful of, kind of my physical health and, and maintaining relatively good physical health by being an exercise junkie. Um, I wasn't good at sleeping. I wasn't good at recovering. And my nu nutrition probably wasn't as good as it should be because I kind of thought I'm exercising so much so I can, you know, I can eat and drink all this crap. I'm guilty um, of that. Uh -huh. no? I'll have the Easter egg and then do the hit class. Yeah, yeah, exactly, That's exactly. Balance, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, and so, you. Yeah, yeah. Look, but but you know, I'm not going to say that that was. I mean, yes, I had a very stressful job. I was traveling the world. I was on airplanes all the time. I wasn't sleeping as well as I should. And at the same time, you know, we in 2008 we made a decision that we would localize in the UK. I'd been an expat with Unilever for a long time. I'd saved a lot of money, put a lot of money in the bank, and suddenly it was, no, we're going to make our roots in the UK. That means I need to buy a property. You know, take all this money that I had saved, which I felt so secure about, and stick it into a property. You know, and, and so I think it was a combination of that lifestyle I was leading together with localizing in this country, together with kind of not feeling that I, as financially secure as I would have, you know, and I think it was just all of these things that hit me at the same time, which, and yes, there was at the time, there was a stressful piece of work that I was doing, but I'm not going to say that it was just that. I think it was a combination of those things that I've just described. And, and maybe the work and the particular project that I was doing was the final straw that broke the camel's back. Tipped it over the edge in a way. I love how you started with lifestyle because it, we, it's easier for us to blame the job or blame the thing. But actually, if we're taking responsibility for our own balance, talking, nutrition, like all of the other things, Absolutely. Um, you, you talk a lot about the, the logical thing about how our physical health and mental health are connected, right? Which yeah. is just so um, <laughs> obvious. Our brain is attached to our body, you know, um, but it's so often separated, right? Like they've got anxiety and yeah. they're, you know, they have a physical health thing. 
you know, it's, it's part of my challenge to, to workplaces right now and boardrooms that I'm in and executive teams. I say to them, I say, you know what? You've spent billions in health and safety. Guess what? All the money's gone to safety. And just try and explain to me, why do you want to keep people physically safe at work, but you don't want to keep them emotionally and mentally safe? So you're telling me that they leave their emotions and their cognitive ability at the door when they walk in. And the only bit of safety that you're interested in is keeping them physically safe. You know, it, we're not, we're not <laughs> separated. I walk into the door with my emotions, with yeah. my cognitive ability. And so why don't you want to keep me safe as a whole person rather than just physically safe? And do you feel people are getting that when you like map it out in a different perspective? Yeah, people, I mean, look, I mean, you know, my narrative, as you know, Petra, I mean, for the last six or seven years, I've been very much campaigning and being an activist and helping organizations break the stigma of mental ill health in their workplaces. But yeah. over the last year or 18 months, that narrative has shifted to more how do you see the health of your people or why don't you see the health and the well-being of your people as a strategic priority in your business? Because I can tell you, when healthy pe- if you've got healthy people, they will perform. Well, guess what? COVID-19 is proving that 100% right. Isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, your and my time has come. I mean, COVID-19, yes. and I'm going to send you this wonderful podcast for you to listen to afterwards. But, but you know, talk about if you haven't got healthy employees, what happens to workplaces all over the world. And, uh, and so hopefully, in answering your question, you know, bit of what we were saying earlier, why does it take some crisis before we kind of wake up and, and realize what's important? And, and, I, and I think that um, I think more and more companies will begin to view the health of their people more as a strategic priority, or at least stick it on their risk matrix and make sure that they are investing the right amount of money to mitigate the risk rather than say, oh, I've had a well-being week and now we've ticked the box and we can move on. Yeah, it's great to actually see the progress that we've seen within businesses over the last years and that the conversation is changing, but still globally, I think there's countries that need to sort of catch up considerably, don't they? Oh, huge, huge. Yeah. And, you know, some are still at the kind of just breaking the stigma. Yeah. But others like I think Australia, Canada, to some extent ourselves, who are actually beginning to, to move yeah. the health and well-being to, to, to a board agenda item. Yeah, it's exciting actually to be part of this conversation now to finally be taken seriously and for people to get it. Yeah. Um, so talk us through what was it like being told that you had anxiety-fueled depression? It was an absolute shock. Was it? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know me. I mean, yeah. I'm not the, you know, what? Jeff McDonald suffering from depression? Yeah, you're a get on with it kind of guy. Yeah. And also, kind of, you know, I often, I often say that, I mean, when I first moved to this country, I'd been here for two years and people used to tell me about this thing called SAD. And I used yeah, to say, what's what, sad? Tell me, what's that? And they used to say, oh, seasonal effects disorder. And I used to think, okay, tell me more. What's seasonal effects disorder? And then they would say, no, it's the weather can influence your mood. And I remember I used to think to myself, what a load of crap. What a load of crap. The weather influence your mood? Just, man, you know, Piers Morgan, you'd say, just man up, you snowflake. I mean, that was kind of, you know, that was where I was at. And now suddenly, here I am, you know, told by a doctor. And in many ways, it was hugely liberating to be, to actually no, have, yeah, to, get a, to get a kind of diagnosis, which kind of said that that's what you're suffering from. But wow, you know, I would never in a million years have thought that, that, I, would, I, that I would experience anxiety-fueled depression. 
but also it sounds like you've been on a success track, you know, Unilever, you've been a, you know, a masculine dude who's trying for security and finances are important and that sort of thing. What was it like to almost for that three months, you said for three months, you kind of didn't work or, or you had to take time off that sort of thing to just deal with or become accustomed to or like let go of work. Like what was that three months like? Oh, that three months was, was very painful. Yeah. Very, very painful. You know, I mean, I was completely self-absorbed in those three months, completely, you know, and that's why I was so lucky to have all these people around me to support me. I mean, as I often say, the only thing that saved my life in those three months was knowing that I was loved. Talk about the power of love. Yeah. Talk about the power of love. I can tell you, knowing that I was loved by so many people is what kept me going in my darkest, darkest moments. So in those three months, you know, I, I struggled with the impatience of the illness. I was so desperate to get better quickly, but I couldn't. I just had to let this pass in its right time. You know, I was, there was a sense of, of feeling shameful that I was now on some kind of medication that I was having to take to look after my, to, to, you know, to stabilize me and to look after my, to, to help me improve my mental health. Um, as I say, the self-absorption and just being completely absorbed in myself and, and wishing that this would disappear and it would go. And I don't know, you know, experiencing it. I mean, there's a strange thing. It's got a kind of rhythm to it. You would, you know, you, as you could, as I used to get to about two o'clock of an afternoon, I'd start feeling absolutely fine, you know, and I'd get to the evening and I would be feeling my good old normal self. And I used to remember, I'd then get into bed, put my head on the pillow and I'd lie there and just wish that when I wake up the next morning, I'll feel like I was feeling. And I'd wake up the next morning and I would feel anxious and depressed and sad. And, uh, oh, and I just remember, you know, when I was beginning to get better, there were those days that I would wake up and I would feel okay. But then maybe I'd have two days feeling horrible that I just knew I could see some light at the end of the tunnel. I think the other really important thing that I learned during that time was the importance of taking accountability to get myself better. It yeah. was so, so important, Petra. I, you know, I, I had to, and I can't remember when, when it actually happened, but I remember one night it was pouring with rain. It was pouring with rain. It was freezing because my, I, you know, I was diagnosed in a, in a January. So this must have been February time, pouring with rain, cold. You know what February is like in this yeah. And I was sitting inside. It was about six o'clock. And I just thought to myself, I am getting up and I'm going to go for a run. And I think, you know, I, I put my running kit on. It was pouring with rain outside. And I just went for that run. And, I, and in many ways, I think that was the turning point where I kind of said, no point in sitting around and being self-absorbed and waiting to get better. I have to take some accountability now to try and, you know, yeah. help. Yeah. And that's such a powerful point because so many of the people I've interviewed, but for myself as well, it's that initial being stuck in the victim spot of like, oh, this is being done to me. It's not fair. Um, if only this, 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 we can get complaining and be like, oh, it feels like it's from the outside, you know, looking in rather than going, actually, let me educate myself. Let me test some things and they're not always going to work and they sometimes are going to work and then you find the thing. Um, but I also love that you said sometimes you have to wait for it to run its course because yeah. sometimes you can be doing the things, but you're still going to wake up that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and feel the feeling. Yeah. Um, do, were there moments where you just thought, fucking hell, this is never going to end? Oh, absolutely. 
you know, and as I say, and not only that it's not going to end, but moments of, of, you know, it's not going to end. I'm so self-absorbed. I'm so reliant on all these other people. You know what? They'll all be better off without me. Um, and you have those very profound suicidal thoughts. And, and you, you have know, kids as well, didn't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So Anna, Anna at the time was, I mean, she was 10 and Jennifer was 13. Yeah. But you know, I remember when I got back from the doctor and I told Anna, you know, I'm not well. And I mean, they're so perceptive. And she was 10 at the time. And she said to me, Dad, you know, I've noticed the last couple of weeks that your battery has gone flat. Oh, you know? what a good language around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just wonderful. But um, I'll never forget that. But yeah, you know, and it was, and it was those dark, dark moments and just thinking this is not going to pass. And, you know, I'm a burden to everybody. So maybe life's not worth living. And uh, as I say, you know, I was so lucky that I could talk because I just felt love all around me. And it was just knowing how much I was loved that, that just kept me going. And one of the things I love in seeing your, your talks and um, your message that you put out on stage and companies is using boldly that word love um, as a white male, you know, and saying, actually, we need to love our people. And it's actually that connection, closeness, empathy that is the thing that supports good mental health and productivity and, and all the rest of it. Um, mm -hmm. And people, why do you think people just don't use that word in, in the corporate setting? Well, it's kind of soft, fluffy. fluffy. I can't get away with it. Like you yeah, can. yeah, it's soft and it's fluffy and it's kind of feminine and yeah. oh, it's not macho and it doesn't yeah. kind of fit that sort of corporate culture. But um, wow, you know, I think it's probably the most powerful emotion. You know, and how many how many songs have been sung about the power of love? Yeah. And in fact, in COVID-19 now, uh, we are beginning to see how powerful it is. You know, we are, as a society, we're beginning to collaborate with one another more. You know, business, governments, NGOs, communities are coming together. They're supporting, they're helping one another. Bosses are being more compassionate with their people. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just amazing in many ways. Well, yeah. and there's, there's science behind this now. I don't know if you watch any of Dr. Joe Dispenza's work or his, his books, but he talks about neuroscience and they measure energy and the, 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 the love and gratitude energies actually yeah. heighten uh, what possibility, productivity, yeah. manifestation, like all this stuff. I mean, I find that fascinating to note that producing or supporting the love energy and gratitude, yeah. and those sorts of things actually change things around us, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so talk us through, okay, so you got those three months, you're now finding maybe a little bit of acceptance because that's often the cycle that happens. You're taking a bit of accountability for exercise and do, learning to do some of the things to shake it up and, and switch it. What was it like returning to work, I guess? And, and what was the transition to now being this, this Jeff McDonald who's like standing on street corners telling everyone how it should be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so sweet. Um, again, I was so lucky. You know, I worked for a company, Unilever, that truly cared. They cared about me. In many ways, I was really lucky because I was quite senior and I'd built all sorts of credibility over 20-odd years in the business. I wasn't chasing the next job. I didn't have to climb the ladder. In many, I had a boss who was compassionate, who understood, who had a 
a supportive relationship to mental ill health. So in many ways, I was really lucky. And they were so good in the way in which I was able to reintegrate myself back into work. You know, it wasn't as if it was, it really was like going back to work like I had a plaster cast. You know, if I had a plaster cast on, you wouldn't have asked me to go and get you a cup of coffee, all right? You would have gone and got the cup of coffee. And they treated me the exact same. They said, right, you haven't got a plaster cast. You, and, but you're, you, and, I, and I was very upfront to say, look, I want to get back to work, but I'm only 80% better. And so therefore, I've got to do this slowly. I've got to do this at my pace. Are you okay with that? And, it, and, and the fact that they spoke to me about what was best for me rather than assuming stuff and thinking yeah. and making sure that I went back into the same job and they didn't think that they needed to sideline me and put me in another job for a couple of months to let myself, you know, reintegrate back into the same job. But yeah, I, you know, I only worked three days a week to start with. I would start at 10, I would finish at three. And it was just that slow, slow reintegration. I can tell you that first day going back was petrifying. You know, I remember walking over Blackfriars Bridge back into that office where I hadn't been for three months, wondering what people were going to think and say, and ask me. I mean, it was, it was scary stuff. But I was so lucky that I had that support to do it in a, in a way that was going to suit me um, so that I could, I could flourish into the future which is a great lesson on how businesses could be treating people in order yeah. to get them back so lucky. So lucky. feeling a sense of belonging and getting them productive again. Yeah. And so then how did this transition into your purpose? And I guess leaving Unilever yeah. at some point. Well, you know what? I mean, the, the, the transition only really, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, October of so, so I'm ill in 2008, take three months off work. I have a relapse in 2010. Nothing as bad as 2008. I, I was able to stay at work, you know, because I think work is, is good for you. Um, yeah. And then in 2012, I lost one of my best friends to suicide. Uh, I was walking over the bridge one evening, coming back to Waterloo Station on my way home, got a phone call to, to say that, that my friend had died by suicide that afternoon. And, you know, Petra, when I got home, that, and here was a guy, you know, the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. All right. Mm -hmm. Just think about that. The brighter the light, the darker the shadow. And I lay in bed that night and I just, I thought to myself, I can't believe this. I can't believe he's gone. Um, why didn't he talk to me about this? I had the, you know, I had the t-shirt, I had the badge and I lay there and I came to the simplest of conclusions. And the conclusion that I came to was that I was able to talk and he wasn't. And that stigma had killed my friend. And I'm not saying to you this afternoon that had he been able to talk, he would definitely be here. Sure. But what I am saying is that there's a tiny, 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 tiny chance that he still would be here today. And, and I lay there and I thought, you know what, that's not fair. And I want to do something about that. But I didn't know where to start because 2012, I'm still working for Unilever. Um, I mean, I've got no idea. How do, how do, I, how do I make a difference in this space? Yeah. Back in 2012, Time to Change was just starting to launch itself oh, yeah. in the UK. Yeah. Sue Baker was the CEO and Alistair Campbell was the kind of front of Time to Change. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to Google him. So I Googled Alistair Campbell that night. Up came his website. There was an email address and I emailed him. And I just said, please, please, will you meet with me? Because yeah. I want to make a difference in this space. Within 10 minutes, he'd responded. A week later, we met up in Belsize Park. Uh, and ever since that day, he began to open doors. He introduced me to Sue Baker. He introduced me to this one. He introduced me to that one. And slowly, slowly, I began to build this network of people that Alistair had introduced me to. And I started to take tiny, tiny footsteps on this path filled with this deep sense of purpose. 
I then led a piece, well, I co-led a piece of work in Unilever uh, for another 18 months around addressing the stigma of mental ill health. And at the end of 2014, I left Unilever to go out into the world and take those learnings to other organizations. So, so yeah, you know, I had somebody like Alistair Campbell who was looking after my back, introducing me to the right people. Uh, I, I did some of it in Unilever, which then gave me a bit of credibility to be able to go out and say, you know what, I've done some of this, I've co-led, this is what worked for us, this is what didn't work. Um, I got onto the board of a couple of mental health charities and the rest is history. Do you feel that this drive and purpose and everything that's been going on in the last years has supported good mental health for you? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, but it's only one of the things. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So having a sense of purpose, yes, definitely is a contributor to good mental health for me. But, you know, one of the things I learned in Unilever at the time was we, you know, I did a lot of work in helping Unilever rediscover a sense of purpose as an organization. And we saw what that did to the, how it's transformed that business by creating a greater sense of purpose that people were coming to work to improve the health and well-being of a billion people in the world, to reduce our environmental footprint, blah, blah, blah. Not only to grow and be profitable, that would be the consequence of, of living out that sense of purpose. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, back in, back in 2013, I asked for some data. I wanted some data on how we were, our long-term absence data. Uh, and I wanted it over a period of, you know, a couple of months, you know, six months or whatever. And I noticed that the data was going in the wrong direction. And I kind of thought to myself, how can this be? An organization creating a sense of purpose for people, yeah. yet long-term absence data, and we know 50% of that is anxiety or depression related, it's yeah. going in the wrong direction. And it was a big aha moment for me, which was kind of, you know, you can't just focus on the purpose stuff. You've also got to look after, you know, you've got to do things that, that help you to look after your mental health. You've got to do things that help you to look after your emotional health and you've got to look after your physical health and it's that kind of holistic approach uh, that I think is really really important and so yes of course a sense of purpose and meaning has contributed to my mental health but yes. so is looking myself physically you know maintaining good relationships and connections learning mindfulness meditation all these sorts of things have all contributed to helping me um maintain my recovery as an anxiety-fueled depressive because I know I'm susceptible to this stuff. Right, and I love that. So it's maintain your, your recovery and back to what was the problem in the beginning, it's, it was partly your lifestyle. So the yeah. choices you were making. Yeah. And so yeah. it's like you've got a different frame on it now. Oh. You've got to put the work in before you start feeling the signs that you're going off oh. to, down that yeah. road. You know, Petra, part of, when, I, when I talk about um, making health a strategic priority in organizations, you know, w one of the things that I say, the most important priority in my life is my health. It's number one. Now, if Debbie heard you say that, she'd probably say, well, what? Or if the kids heard, but it is. It is yeah. the, and, and yes, it took this crucible moment in my life. You know, it took the loss of my friend. Uh, but it is the most important priority in my life. And if I've got that mindset, you know, I mean, and, and it's all about self-compassion as well and not feeling guilty that my health is the most important priority in my life. And I often say to these senior leaders, you know, they say, okay, so we, if we want to make this a strategic priority, where do we start? And you know what I say to them? I say, we start with you. How, how do you 
How important is you maintaining your health? Because if it's not important to you, you will not find it important and try and maintain the health of anybody else. I love that. We definitely speak the same sort of message because I'm always saying lead by example. In our leadership training, our manager training, it's like, what do you do? If somebody sees you never taking a lunch break and always being late and huddled around your desk and yeah. not, you know, not looking healthy, what do you think they're going to do? Yeah. It's like, well, I've got kids as well. They follow what we, what we do, not what we say, right? Yeah. But if you can't, and, and, and I like to take it to an emotional level, which is kind of saying, if you can't care for your own health, yeah. you can't care for anybody else's health. Do you know Absolutely. what I mean? If you can't show self-care, you won't show care to anybody else. You know? And so, so for me, that, as you said, that, that mindset shift um, that has taken place where this is the most important, you know, I, can't, I cannot pour from an empty cup. Absolutely. Um, and so you obviously have to maintain it. What challenges do you face at the moment or what's still tough for you? Because I kind of know that life doesn't do the perfect hero's journey of it was hard and now it's good. Like, yeah, that's why I say, that's why I actually say I, I am recovering every single day. I work on my recovery as an anxiety fueled depressive. Um, and you know, I, of course I have, I have days. I sometimes still have weeks where I will be, where I feel very anxious, yeah. but Hey, guess what? I've learned how to manage those thoughts. I've learned how to, I've been, I've learned to be more accepting of my feelings rather than trying to fight them. I used to try and fight those feelings and get rid of them. And now I accept them and kind of think, you know what, at least I can feel this. And, and by feeling this, it allows me to know what the opposite and to really appreciate the opposite. Um, so anxious, yeah, I can really feel it. Calm, wow, I can sure appreciate contentment and, and being calm. So, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I still have some of those challenges that I manage. Um, but, but, yeah, you know, I, 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 and, and of course, you know, um, because I travel as much as I do now and my work is taking me all over the place. I mean, then getting the time to, to do a bit of my exercise, you know, um, making sure that I, that I am sleeping well enough, uh, making sure that I am still connecting with friends, family, you know, I mean, that's difficult when you are, you when know, you're routine you're kind of in, yeah, yeah. You know, a bit of that sort of, that rat race of trying to get out there and save the world as it were. Well, and also entrepreneurship, achievement, consulting. It's like you, yeah. you're the person who has to do everything. There's yeah. stress involved. Am I doing the right, but you know, there, there's yeah. a lot there. Um, yeah. I know we don't have that much time left uh, before I ask my final question. Um, where can people find you if they want to get you involved in their own companies or see you, see your work? Uh, they can probably find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, Petra, somebody said to me a couple of years ago, they said, Jeff, you've got all this information in your head. Why don't you create a website? And I kind of thought, what? No ways. Jeff McDonald, a website? I mean, that's yeah, like, it is. no, 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 no ways. Anyway, I eventually did do one. So if people want to get hold of me, they can also you can have a look at my website. It's jeffmcdonald.co.uk or they can get me on LinkedIn. Perfect, perfect. Well, we'll add that into the show notes so people can just click on and it'll just be easy. Yeah, yeah. And finally, I know you're doing webinars like I am, specific to remote working and the anxiety levels around COVID-19 and the world that we're in. Do you have any advice for leaders and managers of companies within this new normal? 
I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to end on two messages. Okay. Okay. So the first message is just in terms of leaders. Um, I think what leaders have got to be doing now is number one, they've got to be instilling trust in their people. I think the second thing that they've got to instill is a sense of hope. Agreed. I think the third is to instill a sense of stability and reduce the uncertainty as much as they can. Not, there's no ways they can get rid of all the uncertainty, but I think they've got an important role to play in instilling some stability and trying to reduce that uncertainty. And then finally, I think it's about instilling compassion uh, amongst their, their employees. So I, and I don't think that's too difficult to do as leaders. Instill hope, trust, compassion, and stability. And finally, love, kindness, compassion are all very contagious. They really but are. Don't wait to catch it. Go and be the carrier. Go be the carrier. I'm just going to have to do that little clip on Instagram. <laughs> Get all our views right up. Um, Steph, I love that so much. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And I'm sure we will be in touch as we always are. As always, we've covered a lot of areas that you may feel you want to learn more about. If you would like a free well-being assessment for your company, email us at hello at petravelzebor.com. That's hello at P-E-T-R-A-V-E-L-Z-E-B-O-E-R.com. Or check out our website, petravelzebor.com.